This podcast is brought to you by Maddox Lawyers, who are the lawyers to call when you need practical solutions to complex problems. Hello listeners, welcome to PX28 Today. I'm Jess Noonan and uh, as always I'm joined by Peter Jewell. Hi Jess. I can't believe we're at number 28. Time is flying when you're having fun. Sounds good. Today we'll be talking with Sean Hogan from ISPT. Sean is one of these guys that everyone just seems to know. Funnily enough, Sean and Pete actually worked together many moons ago at Bruce Henderson Architects. Coincidentally, Pete's mother was also the wedding celebrant at Sean's wedding 20 years ago. (laughs) Sean also worked as a design manager for another developer before moving to ISPT, which is one of Australia's largest and best performing property fund managers. His background is in design and most of his recent work has been in high density and broad acre residential development. Sean is also a guru on social housing and is often asked to present and contribute to discussion in this important area. We'll talk about this further today. Welcome to the Sean Show. Oh my gosh. Welcome to the show, Sean. Too many S's in there. <laughs> Thanks, Jess. Thanks, Peter. Um, I just want to say before we start that um, while I work for ISPT, the views I'm expressing today really are my own. Can you just give us a quick um, overview of your background? Sure. I, um, I originally started... Uh, Interior design at RMIT, and back in those days it was done in conjunction with uh, the architecture course. Um, uh, when I finished RMIT, I came out right in the middle of a recession and uh, I actually did some work with my uncle who produced furniture, one-off pieces of furniture for retail, commercial and some residential. And so I was designing for him for a while and then Luckily for me, I got involved with another guy who designed nightclubs and I spent a fair chunk of the 1980s designing nightclubs, which was an awful lot of fun and don't ask me too many questions on that because most of it's a bit of a blur. <laughs> Does that um, mean you never had to wait in line anywhere? Never had to wait in line. I had a drink card, if anyone knows what a drink card is, and a, a, that drink card at some places was actually an unlimited drink card, which was great. Amazing. Um, but that'll be another interview altogether, I think. Hold on, what's your claim to fame then on nightclubs? No, I don't have a claim to fame. Well, <laughs> a lot of them, we didn't, I didn't do any of the major ones and they only have a very short life, which I got to appreciate because I'd been doing this for two or three years and got the same ones back again to redo. <laughs> so they had a very short lifespan back then. Um, yeah, and then from that I got involved in architecture and I went and worked with Bruce Henderson, which uh, was fantastic and that's really where I learnt a lot because, Peter, as you'd remember... Mm. In any one week at that office, you could be working on an office tower in Sydney, a shopping centre in Melbourne, a resort complex in um, Africa, um, you know, a residential complex in Queensland. Yeah. It was a fantastic experience, great and experience. It, and it's not true that all the designs look the same either, was it, Sean? No, that's not true at all. There was a, well, there was a studio of about 12 designers, as I recall, mm. which... Um, you know, that was great fun. That was a great time. And I certainly learned an awful lot about development then. We worked for a lot of developers. And then came the recession. Sure. And then came the recession. I took a year or so off and went sailing for well, nearly 18 months, mainly up and down the east coast of Australia. Um, I had a great time and went to Europe for a while and then came back just as the thing started getting going again. What does ISPT do? ISPT, so that's Industry Superannuation Property Trust. So we're not a super fund, we're a trust and we're owned by 30 of the industry super funds. And so we invest on behalf of those super funds. And so we represent a fair proportion of their exposure to to direct property. Australia only or overseas? 
Look, we have an international fund, but primarily our focus is on Australia. Now, Sean, you're not a planner. What has your experience been with the planning system as a proponent? Well, rich, <laughs> rich and varied over the years. Um, because obviously I've done a lot of work around Australia, but I've also done some work internationally in Asia and North America. And as I say, rich and varied. Um, and I, I suppose it's given me a, I suppose, a different perspective on, on planning and how it should operate. And are things improving, Sean, or are they, are they going backwards? Or are they just standing still? Um, look, I think they're actually going backwards. Now, I know that uh, people in other states around Australia look at Victoria and go, well, your planning system is pretty good. Uh, it's only because theirs is worse, not because Victoria is great. But I, I think it's it's way too complex. And, you know, to illustrate that, we'll just quickly go through the planning process. So a proponent puts a project together gets an application together, makes that application to council, uh, unless you say in this instance it complies with everything, okay? Um, and then you go to um, some kind of consultation, community consultation or whatever. The planning staff at the council put together a report. The report goes up to council and let's say this time it goes up with a recommendation to approve. Um, now, that council can actually refuse it. So I, I must be the only one that thinks this, but I just think that's absurd. So we've got this huge complex um, planning system right down to overlays and whatever. Um, so you can make an application for a proposal that complies with everything and get, gets refused. So then you go off to the planning tribunal or whatever, the next step, and you're in the hands of, of a particular member, and that's okay. But my problem is it doesn't really matter what what decision gets handed down at that point because I think every party involved walks away aggrieved. So how is that a good system? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, it just for all the complexity, you can make a, an application that complies and, and it can be refused and it, you just – and you do that on a, on a project by project basis. So do you think more confidence should be put in the planner that's assessing the application at council? Is that sort of what you're saying that despite what the council officer might say – that you can still have a council law or a manager come come over the top and refuse something. Well, yeah, that that's true. Particularly in cases where the the application is is uh, you know complies with all of the planning scheme requirements, mm. complies with all the policies, complies with the guidelines, complies with everything. I just find it astonishing that mm. it can just be refused, particularly where the professional planners who have assessed it recommend it be approved. Mm. Is this a case, Sean, of community expectations and that the community is saying, well, we want to say and we value that, as planners, we value that community input? And uh, sometimes I'll just say that there's the flip side where management might overrule uh, a negative appraisal. Yeah, that's true, but... uh I think we value the community input. There's no question. My view is that should this be on a project-by-project basis? I really think that if we've got a planning system that is quite prescriptive and quite detailed, then what stage do the community actually 
determine what the outcome should be. So in my head, an ideal planning system would be one where the community is involved in the early stages and let's say we're looking at a an activity centre or whatever where there's a, you know, a detailed analysis done of a precinct and then the uses, the densities, the heights and the envelopes and everything else is agreed up front and that's with community consultation and uh, industry consultation as well. Then you end up with a series of envelopes and whatever and, in, and the discussion is held at once about the whole precinct. And then if you apply for a planning permit under that or within that precinct, if it complies, then there should be no issue. There should be no third-party appeal rights. There should be no appeals. There should be you know, no other... It should just be approved. I think that's a far better system than having these battles, and that's what they end up being, over every single development site. I'm just conscious that we do have listeners across Australia and also internationally. Do you have any um, good examples of other systems where you think um, that planning system is done a little bit better or where there's other positives or negatives? Yeah, so in um, Western Australia, for example, there's the MRA, which is the Redevelopment Authority, and they go through a similar process, primarily on government-owned land um, before it's released to the market. And that works quite well. There are some other little details in there that can get a bit confusing and frustrating, but generally I think that's the process I described. And then the other one is in Brisbane, whereby if you lodge a an application that complies with everything, then it's approved within six weeks. So that's, it does work. Mm. Um, I know there are some issues now in Brisbane. Some people don't agree with that that particular approach. But, you know, for us as proponents, it, it, obviously it works quite well. Um, but I just go back to the, the that idea that if you've got a prescriptive planning system, how can you refuse things that, that, that um, comply with it? I mean, what's the point of having it? Mm. Well, we've got a mix of both prescriptive and um, subjective, but... Um, Sean, as developers are sometimes unfairly characterised as the villains, do you think developers as uh, a body need a makeover? I mean, I, I always think the term developer carries with it lots of negative connotations. I mean, would creators or something like that instead? I think... I think um, there could be a number of others that others would come up with. Yeah, there that. could be some <laughs> others, but I don't think it's the term. I think it's... Um, and I think we're... Not sometimes, but when you're always portrayed as, as the villain in the piece. And I think there is some work on on behalf of developers to be done in, in that respect and the Property Council uh, here has certainly been looking at that. Um, but also, you know, the, the one thing you can't control is the media and the media plays a huge role in this and it's the way... It's the way these things are played out in the media and particularly social media, which you have even less control over, uh, that really... I suppose that's the main problem as I see it. So, yeah, we've got a bit, bit of a, an image issue, but that largely has been created by, by the media. Is uncertainty or time the bigger risk in your development? Both. Um, so that, and we get asked this often when we're dealing with government as to, well, why are you in such a hurry? Well, we're in a hurry because of the time value of money. And also when, when someone acquires a site... They have to. It's based on a, a feasibility, and in that feasibility, you have to have timing. And how much do you allow for the planning process? Do you allow six months? Do you allow twelve months? Do you allow eighteen months? Do you allow two years? 
how much time do you allow? And, and what risk then do you put against? Well, what yield will we actually get? Because we know that if we apply for or we make an application that complies with it, and there's still a chance that we'll get knocked back and, and knocked down and, and, and actually cut back. So the way the system's set up, it's set up as an adversarial process, which I think is wrong. Um, as I said before, you know, it should all this stuff should be agreed before any applications made. Um, and so I think that really the, the I think the process is flawed. Just on the flip side, that adversarial <clears throat> system sometimes brings out better results. I would put to you. I know there might be delays, but um, that contest of ideas. Um, yeah, not, not that's not been my experience, and if it has been my experience, it's been in the mo- very certainly in the minority of cases. Mm-hmm. I mean, certainly, again, look, we we value the community input into these things because we you know we don't want to go around creating things that nobody's happy with or people resent. Um, but again, you know, we've got a planning scheme and a whole lot of controls that we respond to in the first place. Um, and I suppose the, so. The, the the other flip side is that where a proponent comes up with something that's innovative or creative or different and, you know, the response is always, almost always, well, no, you can't do that because I can't tick these boxes or it doesn't fit this or it doesn't do that. So there's there's two sides to that. Do you think, you know, I, I think, Sean, what we were looking at all those years ago at Henderson's and what's happened, say, 10 years after and now that a lot of the way things were looked at in the past were very timid compared to what we recognise now as uh, an essential re-necking or re-energising of the city. Do you think planning controls lag behind? Uh, Yeah, I do. I do. And it's one of those things that every time you look at um, a TOD or transport-oriented development, whenever you look back at one five years later, you always go, gee, we really undercooked that, didn't we? Because the value of that asset that infrastructure, that railway station or whatever it is, I think is often um, underutilised. And, you know, I can give you plenty of examples around where, where um, exactly as you say, you know, w- when you look at it at the time, you think that's appropriate, but often with hindsight, you go, well, maybe we did undercook it. But then that's the big issue at the moment, and that's density. And, you know, Melbourne's growing at a huge rate. Um, there's 100,000 people looking for dwellings, 100,000 people, you know, arriving in the state every year and we've got to find somewhere to put them. So the population growth, that's another issue. So that, you just put that to the side for the moment because that's a whole other interview. Um, if we're to accommodate those people, where do we put them? Now, affordability in Melbourne, as you know, is another big issue. So someone looking for a house in melbourne the median house price is now what 850,000 or something ridiculous in melbourne not not as bad as sydney which is over a million but 800 that's a lot right so and typically you'll find that most young families might be looking in that $400,000 bracket for a family home they need three bedrooms um, well they don't have a choice really because they can't get a three bedroom apartment in the city because that's one and a half to 2 million dollars they can't get a nice townhouse in the inner suburbs because that's $2 million. They can't. So there really is only one choice and that one choice is out in the growth areas where they can get a three-bedroom house and land package for three hundred and fifty to $450,000. They don't have a choice. Now, I know a lot of people go, well, we shouldn't be doing greenfield development because, you know, they're underserviced by infrastructure, they're underserviced by a whole lot of things and, you know, it's it's pushing our services to a limit that's unsustainable. Okay, I accept 
that that's an issue, but but where else are these people going to go? Where else can they? Where, if, where else can they afford to be accommodated? There's not much of a choice, really. Mm. So you're obviously passionate about affordable and social housing. Is that based on any personal experience in your <laughs> life, or what I, drives I think, your commitment? So I've listened to all of your podcasts, and I think they're great. And one of the interesting things is you always ask people about their background to try and relate how their background influences what they're doing today. We're, we're all shaped I'm by experiences. <laughs> we are all shaped by experiences and, and the answer to that question is I grew up on a housing commission estate way out in the northern outskirts of Melbourne and, you know, that area was... Well, it was less... It had less infrastructure than what we put into the greenfields now uh, and it had a lot less social infrastructure. And so, you know, I can tell you firsthand... The result of that is a lack of social cohesion. And well, the short story is you end up with a whole lot of teenagers who are bored out of their skulls. What do they do on weekends and weeknights? Mm. Well, they engage in a whole lot of risky behaviour because there's nothing else to do. Mm. Sounds like uh, reminds me back of Henderson days. <laughs> <laughs> that was a different kind of risky behaviour. <laughs> Special thank you also to Song Bowden Planning, who offer a dynamic approach to addressing the challenges presented by Victoria's planning framework. And also to SALT3 for traffic engineering solutions and to the Victorian Planning Reports, our very first sponsor. Thank you. Um, so, Sean, do you think government activity in this space has been quite lax? So I think the fact that we've got over 30,000 people on a waiting list in Victoria, probably 19 or 20,000 on the waiting list in Western Australia, you know, there's similar figures in other states. I think that says a lot about a lack of investment uh, in affordable and social housing. And, OK, that's been magnified, I suppose, by the incredible increase in the cost of housing in Australia, certainly in our capital cities. Um, so, yeah, I think government has been lax, both state and federal, and I, I think that's that's why, obviously, we have these, these waiting lists. So there also seems to be, and correct me if I'm wrong, that um, the US has quite a strong investment in social housing through superannuation. Why doesn't this work in Australia, or does it? And we just don't know about it. I think if you've seen the news lately that um, there is... Uh, so the super funds have invested in housing in the US and the UK and there is a social and affordable component in that housing. And just speaking very broadly, so there is an investment class in the US and the UK which is housing. So there's the built-to-rent or multifamily models whereby institutional investors own blocks of apartments and they rent them out. And that's, uh, you know, it's probably the second biggest property investment class in the US and it's it's growing in Europe. Um, it, it, it hasn't worked or it hasn't been attractive in Australia because of the tax regime here and the cost of housing. So it's very difficult to get a return. And I know I hear a lot of people say, well, look here, there's a need for social and affordable housing. It's over long term, requires a lot of capital. And there's a very, very small return, so therefore the super funds should invest in that. Mm. Well, the super funds can't because they have a, a requirement to provide the best returns possible for their investors. Uh, so until we can get a model that um, 
that provides a sufficient return on a risk-related basis or risk-adjusted basis, um, I don't think we'll see it. Now, there, there are certain entities around who are now saying that they're ready to, to um, start those sort of investments in, in, in residential property on a, on a larger scale. Whether or not that includes a social or affordable aspect, yet to be seen. Um, but, but there are three issues here. One is, you know, uh, a housing fund that has residences for rent. The other issue is affordability, and affordability is a market issue. So affordability talks about the cost of housing, and then there's social housing, and social housing is that housing that has some form of assistance, whether it's through a registered housing provider or through government assistance or some other means. So, the, so <clears throat> affordable housing problems, Sean, they're really self-imposed. We, we can solve. We can solve it. So the silver bullet for for no, no, but maybe many very changing variables, but it's it's all self-imposed. We can find a solution to this. Yeah, we can. Um, but the so look, if there was a silver bullet, the silver bullet is the obvious one. It'd be government funding. Okay, now governments claim they don't have the funding. I mean. You know, a couple of less fighter planes, one less submarine. If you, I know that's very simplistic and, you know, they're not really related. But it, it um, I find that a bit um, depressing that there is... The governments are happy to spend money on a whole range of things, um, but affordable... So social housing doesn't seem to be very high on their agenda and perhaps, it, you know, perhaps there's not a lot of votes in it. But the... The outcomes from the lack of social housing, I think, are many and, you know, the cost-benefit of every dollar invested into social housing, the cost-benefit ratio is calculated to be somewhere between three and seven times, depending on who you speak to. In terms of the saving on on health, police, um, crisis management, all sorts of things. And also on then on the, the positive effects and the, you know, the economic... Um, the positive effects on the on the economy as well. Sean, I know from experience you've got a reputation for creative and strategic thinking. What are you, what are your suggestions for the affordable and social housing sphere? So I'm working on a few things, but um, apart from you know some government funding in this space, I um, I came up with a, a one one idea was an incremental scheme for the introduction of discounted housing so for example if you're if you're doing a development of a hundred apartments or more then with a year's notice um, you you provide one percent of those dwellings at a 30 percent discount to a, a registered housing provider and then in two years two percent three years three percent four years four percent five years so in five years time or six years time we will have 5% of the new stock created available for housing providers to purchase at a 30% discount. Now, this, again, it's incremental and it'll help fill that niche of affordable dwellings, not so much necessarily social, but certainly affordable dwellings. And that is done in such a way that it has minimal impact on the market. So there's no shock to the market by an introduction of something huge straight off. And I think it's something that the market can manage. Well, what's the difference between that and, say, inclusionary zoning? So inclusionary zoning is where the government mandates it. So if, if for example, the government was to say tomorrow, well, from now on, if you're doing 100 apartments more or whatever it is, you must gift 5% of those to 
uh, registered housing provider, then straight away the development industry has to find some way of making up that 5% overnight. And the only way it's going to happen is be an increase in prices. And so, okay, so we're giving some free stock to social housing, but at the same time we're pushing up the price of market housing, which negates the affordable effect. But that makes for great media releases. The yeah. government's doing uh, something uh, about yeah, housing. Initially, but, you know, the the, respo- the the actual effect will be to push up ha- up housing prices generally. Yep. So how does, um, how does Australia compare to, say, the UK in terms of total housing stock? Is it... Because I think I heard somewhere the other day UK is something like 50-50 or... 60, 40 or something like yeah, that? Yeah, so look, I don't, I don't, I can't speak about, you know, actuals, but it's somewhere like 40%. And, it, you know, it's a high percentage in the US too, but they are, they, their systems have been around for a while. And if you talk to the British, they talk about, yeah, okay, 30 years down the track, it, it's working, but there was a whole lot of problems along the way and we made a whole lot of mistakes and there are, you know, some huge issues. But typically these are government supported and they're supported generally, I believe, through broader based incremental taxes. So rather than putting the whole responsibility for social housing on the development industry, which then creates a problem of increasing prices, it's supported through broad based incremental taxes, fees and levies. Hmm. Sean, <clears throat> we're all internationally you know, connected now. The disaster in the UK and London with the Tower fire... Lessons from that, lessons from other things. Do you do you take all that information on board? Yeah, of course we have to. Um, and the development industry has responded, I think. So a lot of builders have already were already assessing, you know, the cladding panels they've been using and and where they have been using ones that may be suspect. There's there'll be um, procedures in place to replace them over time. But yeah, certainly, certainly we do. And look, any development we do, any activity that we're involved in, safety is always the primary concern. So after all of that, you're a glass half empty or a glass half full person when it comes to planning and urban development? Uh, very much glass half full. But but I'd like to say I, I would describe myself as a cynical optimist. <laughs> well, Sean, from personal observation, I can say that you haven't changed much since the days when you had your silver suits and lovely... Open top lance here. Uh, so I'm glad. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad this isn't. You know, uh, I'm glad you don't have photos. But yeah. So the ponytail, the suits, and the the Lancia Monte Carlo yeah. spider. Yeah. Yeah. I did have a lot more hair then. I had a full head then. Um, did you both have ponytails? Or? Peter couldn't quite manage it even then. <laughs> okay. Move, moving on. Yeah, Sean, you're a. Um, you're on a number of industry body committees. Has this been beneficial, you know, for you personally? Oh, absolutely. It's been beneficial in a lot of ways, and this is one of the things I'd like to recommend to young planners in particular: is to get out, get involved, and don't just attend industry events, but try and get onto committees, try and get involved. Um, it's 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 a great learning experience, but also I, I think there's there's a lack of young. Um, professionals uh, actively engaged in these committees um, and I think that we're missing a very important perspective and I have a lot of faith in um, the young professionals I meet. I've been very, very impressed by a lot of the people I work with. I do some 
mentoring both both formally and informally. And I think that the the calibre of young professionals coming through the property industry is extraordinary. So the next wave of leaders will be able to respond to the challenges put forward, do you think? Oh, absolutely. I absolutely believe that, yes. Well, it's going to affect them very personally, I would think. Well. I mean, you know, they're, they're seeing the problems. Um, there's some suggestion that the baby boomers have stolen everything and <laughs> intergenerational theft. Definitely not. I mean, you know, that's... <laughs> So that's the intergenerational theft is not a, you know, it, it's apparent. I think. I think I think that you know you could get very cynical about the whole thing, but it is what it is, and I think that the young professionals coming through are uh, equipped to deal with it, and they have a different view of the world that maybe you and I had, Peter, when we were when we were young professionals all those years ago, mm-hmm. and I think they are very much concerned about the greater effect of what they do. Yes, far more mature. Now, Sean, what what do you know now that you didn't know, say, five years ago? Um, I think I know now that uh, that your involvement in the industry, just as we've described, is far more beneficial, not just for you, but also to the industry. And I think, you know, I've been on the property council committees or subcommittees and whatever for, for 10 years now. And, uh, you know, five years ago I thought it was interesting and it was good and, but now I realise that it, very, it really is a two-way street and what you get out of it is equal by... or what you put into it is equal by what you get out of it but also how the industry benefits from, from your contribution. Now, you've also done some work in placemaking and the future of mixed use um, and future of offices. What do you see as the future of our urban places? Oh, look, I'm very positive about the future of urban places. I know that placemaking is becoming more than just a, a term that's thrown around and I think it's taken much more seriously now than it used to be. And I think it's a, it's an important part of any development, even, you know, a renovation of a, an office building or a repositioning of a shopping centre or, you know, obviously new residential areas. Um, but I think that... That's a critical component. It's certainly something that we take into consideration on everything we do at ISPT and it's something that I've always had a, an interest in. What about um, with the town centres and things that we're seeing being built now? What do you think the impacts of um, you know online shopping and um, hot desking and... Well, hot desking is not the right term. What's it called? Um, Activity-based um, working. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting that I think the the nature of the way we work and the way we shop is changing. But, you know, what is the impact of online shopping going to have on our shopping centres? I I think people still want to get out and they want to interact socially and shopping is more than going and purchasing an item. It it really is um, a social activity and there are... I think it's, and that's one of the issues why placemaking is so important because I think shopping centres will have to become far more... um, interwoven and interactive with their local community in order to to draw people in to actually uh, engage with the shopping centre. So in some ways you could actually say, I guess, though, that activity centres or town centres are going to become more important, particularly with respect to social connection, but also with, um, you know, perhaps the decentralisation of the city and having more people um, congregate in hot-desking offices as opposed to everyone travelling into the city, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. And that's something we're exploring. Obviously, yeah. ISPT owns a lot of office buildings and we want to know what the future of work yeah. is. We want to know how people are going to be working in the future because 
we have a vested interest. We want to know how people will be shopping in the future because we've got a vested interest in a whole lot of shopping centres around Australia. I think, um, you know, we've got, I think there's something like 63 shopping centres, a million square metres um, under management. So that that's important. If I can tell you what we'll be doing in 10 years' time, I wouldn't be sitting here, obviously. Where we're heading, I think we're heading for a bit more flexibility both in work and a bit more flexibility in the way we we shop and we use retail. I don't think – look, you know, when radio came in 120 years ago or whatever, everyone thought, well, that's the death of newspapers. Why would you buy a newspaper that was printed six hours ago? The news is old, just listen to the radio. You know, I still get the paper delivered every morning. Now, I do a lot of – you know, I'll obviously do a lot of research and reading online, but I still get the paper delivered. There's still newspapers. So there'll be shopping centres for a long time, yet it won't kill them. It, it'll change their configuration. It'll change the way we interface with them. Yeah. There'll be a lot more consumer sovereignty, I think, Sean. <clears throat> There'll be a lot more – people want more choice. They don't want to be given things. They want to say – it's like in the old days you had four channels on TV. Mm. It's multi, multi, multi choice. That That's correct, but you still watch those four channels occasionally. <clears throat> um, Sean, what great truth do you know that not many people agree with you about? I don't know that people wouldn't agree with me, but for me, you know – the great truth for me, I suppose, I think about um, my children and I think about you know, the, the world they're going to grow up in and what's it going to be like when they're adults in 20 years' time. And so for me, I look at them and I go, well, okay, well, they'll be successful professionals. I know they will because they're intelligent and they're driven and they'll, 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 they'll get there. But, you know, what will success look like for me? What will I be most proud of in my children as adults? And I think it'll be the way they treat other people, uh, what they do for those less fortunate than themselves and what they contribute to their community because I think that, you know, those attributes of um, empathy and... Um, Service? Well, altruism and tolerance I think are probably the most important human traits there are and I think that's what preserves society and enriches society. So that's, for me, that's the great truth and I'm, I suppose a lot of people will agree with that but it's not something we talk about enough. And so that's, you know, that's how I feel and I think, you know, if you take that back to young professionals out there, I think that they should have a view of not, you know, just their career progression but how do they treat other people? What do they do for, for those less fortunate themselves? How do they... How do they contribute back to their community? So I know I do my bit as much as I can and I'm sure my children will as they grow older and I see... And to be to be honest, I do see a lot of it in our younger professionals. They are willing to get out there and actually do a bit more than than just than I, for themselves. Mm. Yeah. Probably the best answer to that question I think we've ever had. Mm, thank you. I really like that. Um, and then just lastly, how do you refresh and relax? Um, I do a lot of sailing. Um well, I do a lot of sailing. It's never enough sailing. Um, I do a bit of drawing and I showed you some of my drawings before mm, and I, yeah. I did that because this is not a – there's no pictures here so no one else can see them. I'm happy to share them with you. Um, and I love to travel so I've been lucky enough to have three overseas trips, three overseas holidays this year um, which has been fantastic. I really enjoy that. But I love travelling. quite enjoy drawing but, you know, I've got to, I have to sail. I've got to keep sailing. Well, thanks very much, Sean. I've just got one final question our viewers and listeners would like to hear. 
You were married 20 years ago. What's your wedding anniversary? The 11th of May. Thank you, Sean. Um, <clears throat> so thank you, Sean, and thank you, Jess, and we hope you've liked this, listeners. And just a reminder, we're having that competition for five tickets for our launch party on the 1st of November. So if you could send in suggestions to us about uh, what we're doing and uh, who you'd like to hear, that'd be much appreciated. Now, our email address is planningexchange at gmail.com. I don't think so. I'm going back to Cali, Cali, Cali. I'm going back to Cali. I don't think so. Going back to Cali, styling, profiling, smiling, and smiling, while in the sun. The top is down on the black Corvette, and it's black cause it's sitting on the beach.